Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 383. 383. Last week, Pastor Chris finished us out in chapter 2 and brought us into chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. But, but in that text that Pastor Chris preached, we saw this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. We started to see some conflict that started to arise uh, between the religious uh, establishments and Jesus. As Jesus heals the, the, withered, the man with the withered hand here at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, we see that, that the, the Pharisees aren't all too excited about what Jesus is doing. If you just read with me in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Uh, These uh, were the beginnings, this passage, uh, the beginnings of Jesus' conflict with religious leaders. And the pressure, uh, the pressure on Jesus was was real, right? And the pressure would keep coming, and not only from the religious leaders, but we're going to see even more pressure come in the next few verses. Jesus' increasing popularity brought additional pressure, pressure from people who who wanted more uh, from Jesus, more of what they, they saw Jesus doing. Uh, the religious leaders wanted his murder. The crowds were going to find out they, they want his miracles, but neither of them actually wanted his message. Right? So, some wanted him to disappear. Some wanted to take from him, but, but neither of them actually wanted what he came to offer. A ministry or serving the Lord will bring pressure. Some of us have experienced that. Uh, pressure to give up. Uh, pressure to stop. Right? There's, there's threats. There's reasons why we might want to stop doing it. Pressures to please people. People want something. So maybe if we just give it to them, they'll, they'll leave us alone. Right? Or we can just try to make nice with everybody. There's pressure to compromise. We feel that pressure. Pressure to, to miss the main thing and make it about something very different. Jesus experienced pressure. And after this conflict here, the beginning of chapter 3 on the Sabbath, Mark tells us what Jesus did next. Look at verse 7. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Stop there for a moment. Um, We find here that Jesus' response to to the pressures was to withdraw. In In the wake of this clash which was significant, it was a serious clash, it wasn't nothing, he withdrew and he went to the Sea of Galilee. And just We've been using this map, so just for the sake of direction, kind of north there, up by Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is where he went. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 16 tells us this, that so Jesus himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So this idea of, of withdrawal was not Jesus uh, kind of running away, so much as it was a strategic uh, retreat, a, a, a coming away from, a, a departing, a, a withdrawing. Uh, we see this a few other times throughout the Gospels. One of those is in regard to right before the, uh, the temptation in the wilderness that Jesus withdraws. Another time is in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, when, when the people wanted to take him by force to make him king, he withdrew. 
And then one of the other times we see it is in the garden. Right? On the night that he would be betrayed, after supper, he, he withdrew to, to, to um, the garden of Gethsemane. Sometimes we all need to withdraw. Right? Sometimes we all need to, to get away. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But because of his increased popularity, even though Jesus is trying to withdraw, he was not left alone. Keep, keep reading with me in verse 7. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem in Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And now Mark here describes this great crowd of people. And he includes several places or, or cities. And we go back to that map. I've highlighted a few of the, the, the names that, that he listed there. And at the top there, you see Tyre. And this map doesn't show you, but Sidon is even further north from there. And so you get this idea that people are coming from the south. People are coming from, uh, from the south and from, from the north uh, because of what they have heard about Jesus. And the inclusion of all these towns indicates that, that there were both Jews and Gentiles in this group. Right? So it was a large, ethnically mixed group of people. And by large, some would say it's tens of thousands of people who are coming. Okay? This was no, no small matter. It was no small little group of people who were just curious about Jesus. His, his, um, his fame, we could say, has, has spread. And so they have come, and they've traveled many miles, some even 100, 100 miles, to see Jesus. So imagine you traveling a, a great distance to see someone. You're not going to be deterred by their privacy, right? You're not going to be real bothered uh, by them wanting to have some time alone. You're going to say, no, no, wait, wait. I drove 100 miles to be here. I walked 100 miles to be here. I, you're going to see me, right? I, I'm going I'm to see you. I, I want you to meet my needs, right? And so they came to him. Uh, many, many came to him. But Jesus had already stated for us and stated uh, as he began his, pu his public ministry, his purpose of being on earth. It was back in chapter 1, verse 15, and after John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The primary reason for Jesus' presence on the earth was to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's what he was here for. Miracles and healings were only meant to um, help that message. They, they were not the primary part of that message. They were not the primary emphasis. He would not be deterred even by this many people. So that's one of the pressures. The second pressure we see is the problems that they brought. Verse 9, and he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So Mark is describing here a, a pretty chaotic scene. It's meant to sound uh, kind of uh, chaotic. We're going to see more in the next couple of verses. But the, the, the scene or the situation is so uneasy that Jesus says, get a boat ready just in case. Like this is the equivalent of saying, keep the car running. Right? We, we might need to get out of here quickly. Right? That's, that's the kind of pressure that Jesus was feeling. That's the kind of... Um, uh, attention he was receiving, the, the demand that was on him. And we see that he was healing people and he, he was helping those who had diseases. 
But we also recognize that Jesus is kind of looking for the door here, right? I mean, kind of, he's saying, we're going to probably need to get away. Now, this could sound kind of dismissive. It's like, well, all these people are hurting. Like, why wouldn't you just stay and heal them all? As though that's his primary responsibility. But, but this was not an unloving action. Jesus knew something about these people. <clears throat> he knew that they were not there for him. They were there for what they could get from him. And that's very, very different. Later in John chapter 6, we just talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And a very similar thing happens there, where they come back the next day. And Jesus says, what what are you doing? You you don't actually want me. You want what I can give you, which is very, very different. And today, that danger is still very real. That we come to Jesus for what Jesus can give to us, not for Jesus. We, we we, We pray to God, not because we want more of God, but we want more of what God can give to us. We come to him as our, our, our dispensary of getting our needs or our wants, not getting more of him. Jesus understood his mission on the earth and he would not be diverted even from those who wanted something from him. He would not be distracted by what could be called the tyranny of the urgent. Maybe you've heard of that before. The tyranny of the urgent. What, what seems like it's the most, most urgent thing isn't always the most important thing. And Jesus knew that. And so he even here with maybe thousands of people swarming him, he knew better. Verses 11 and 12 tells us of the prevention, uh, the attempt to prevent Jesus, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. So um, this was an attempt, we could say, Um, of the unclean spirits or the demons from preventing Jesus from leaving. Now, back in chapter one, we saw Jesus interact with a demon-possessed man. And the demon-possessed man addresses him by his name. He he identifies who Jesus is. And we said then that the demons uh, were using Jesus' name in in an attempt to gain power over him by claiming to know him. Because there was this belief that having exact knowledge of another brought mastery or control over them. And so for the demon to use the name was somehow trying to control Jesus. But as we saw in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, uh, we're going to see here again that that this doesn't work with Jesus. That might work with some people, it doesn't work with Jesus. Because in verse 12, Jesus says, And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So remember back in chapter 1, uh, Jesus told the demon to, to shut up and, and get out. So here, here's a very similar thing. No, no, you're not allowed to be talking like that. You can't, you, you, you won't be uh, making me known anymore. Uh, Jesus would not be stopped, right? even by demons, even by those who wanted to manipulate or had an ungodly agenda. Jesus would continue, would continue to be about his father's business, Right? We learned that early on in Jesus' life as a child, that he was about the Father's business. And here, he would not be deterred. He would continue to be about the Father's business. Uh, Kent Hughes, a commentator and theologian, summarizes the scene like this. Putting it all together, the ill, the feverish, the cripple were pushing and grabbing at Jesus, falling over him. The demonized were malevolent, sizing him up, and were howling his name in in, in, in combat, the, the, jaundiced, um, the jaundiced Pharisees were watching him, his every move, waiting for their chance. Right? So, so imagine it, right? There, there's this, this pressure on you from all sides. Pressure. 
people, problems, prevention. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you felt pressure before. Maybe you felt pressure from people. Maybe you felt pressure from people's problems. Maybe you felt like there's someone or something trying to prevent you from doing what you know you should be doing. Well, Jesus knows about that pressure. And not only can he relate with you, which is good, that's good to know that Jesus can relate with us. He was a man like us. But he also provided a way to manage the pressure. Here's what's great about Jesus. He doesn't just identify like misery loves company, right? Sometimes we say that, well, we're, we're all in this together. But Jesus actually shows us how we handle, how we can handle pressure. We see that in the next few verses. First, verse 13 he withdraws, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain. So the first management of the management plan was to separate from the crowds. That's the first thing that Jesus does. He goes up on the mountain. Earlier, we said that this was not uncommon for Jesus to do, to separate. In reality, we all need time to regroup. We all need time to, to separate. We all need time to, to go away. We all need silence. We all need solitude. Even if you don't think you do, you do. You need sanctuary. Even if it's for a few minutes a day, you need it. We need it. Life is too busy. The world is too noisy. We need time. One writer says, if we do not follow Christ's example to come apart, we may indeed just come apart. We need time away. Vince Lombardi has said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. We need time away. You need time away. We have a strange stereotype of of this idea, though, uh, of time away, of separating from people, of spending time alone, as if it were rude, or as if it were inconsiderate, or selfish, or or antisocial. Uh, one writer observes that, that anything else will be acceptable as a better excuse than that. Uh, a business appointment, a hair appointment, a social engagement, a shopping expedition, that time is accepted as invaluable or not to be violated, sacred, unchallenged, right? So if you were to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I need to spend some time alone. You'd be like, what? But if you were to say, I have a hair appointment that day. They're like, oh, okay, well, let's reschedule, right? That, that, that would be the response for most of us. To say that I, I need time alone sounds selfish, and yet the reality is if we don't spend the time alone, there's great consequence. We need a reclamation of solitude and of silence. We need time where the television is turned off, the phone is put down, no one's around. We're able to listen. We're able to be quiet We're able to be by ourselves. We're able to be still. We've lost that art. Jesus was not just still, and he wasn't just by himself. In the parallel account in Luke chapter 6, Luke writes it this way. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. The second step that we see Jesus taking was that he spent time with God. Not only did he separate from the crowds, but he spent time with God. Or to, so, so to employ the, the logic of the greater to the lesser, we could understand it this way. If Jesus, if Jesus' plan 
was to withdraw for prayer. If Jesus' way of, of managing the pressure was prayer, uh, if Jesus, who is the Son of God, we could say, needed prayer, then what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does that tell us about when, when we have pressure, when we, have, we feel like the walls are coming in or that the people are pressing in? What does that mean for us? How much more do we need prayer? E. Stanley Jones says, prayer is a time exposure to God. A time exposure to God. We need prayer. The only way we get more of God in this sense is through prayer, through exposure to God. That comes in prayer. The way we can manage our pressure from people and problems is by coming to God in prayer. That might seem obvious enough in a setting like this. Like, well, of course, prayer. But, but how many of us are managing our pressure by separating ourselves and by spending time with God? Is that part of the way that we're managing our pressure? Finally, we see in verses 13 through 19 that Jesus shared responsibilities. Keep reading in verse 13, back in Mark 3. And called him, and called to him, this is Jesus called to him, those who he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We learn something about Jesus in the Gospels is that he is not a lone ranger. Jesus was not just running around the countryside all by himself. They say he really didn't really need anybody. He's Jesus, right? But he was 100% God, 100% man. He was truly God and truly man. So he had everything humanly that we understand and everything divine. And so, yes, he was human. Yes, he needed community. Yes, he needed other people. Here, we see that he intentionally selects the disciples 12 of the disciples to carry out his ministry. Now, we understand there was more than, more than 12 disciples that were following Jesus around, at least at one point. But here he, he selects 12 of them to carry out the ministry at that time and after he would leave the earth. We've gone through the book of Acts here in our church and we've described, or could be described, the book of Acts that is, as the work of Jesus continued by the Spirit through the apostles. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's selecting these 12 to, to further the mission. He's appointing 12 to be apostles. Now, disciples, let's define our terms here. A disciple is one who learns by doing, an, an apprentice, we could say. But an apostle was one sent on official service with a commission, a special ambassador. There were 12 there, there are no more apostles. These were the apostles. You think you're an apostle? You're not an apostle. Let me disabuse you of that right now. If you're listening today, you're not an apostle, right? People are running around saying they're, they're not an apostle. There are specific things, what it takes to be an apostle. These 12, and then Paul himself, met the qualifications clearly. Jesus appoints here 12, though, to be apostles. He appoints them to be with him. That's what the verse uh, 14 says that, that they might be with him. That is, that they might be with him to be trained. So that's one of the reasons he appointed them. The second was to send them out to preach. 
that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. And there's verse, verse 15, the third reason, is that they might have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus brought them with him to teach them, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, and gave them authority to cast out demons. The selection of the 12, we might say, well, why 12? What's significant about 12? Well, if we know our Bible, we can remember back to the Old Testament, we remember there are 12 tribes. There are 12 tribes of Israel. But Israel, we know, had become spiritually decayed. They had rebelled against God. They had rejected the Messiah. And so the appointment now of these 12 was, according to um, Warren Wearsby says it this way, that God would establish a holy nation and the 12 apostles would be the nucleus of this new spiritual nation, which we refer to as the church. This is the beginnings of that. So though these men were called to a unique ministry that in a lot of ways we are not called to, every follower of Jesus is called to be with God is called to be with Jesus, to learn from him and to carry his mission into the world, enabled by the Spirit. That, that's what the Great Commission is all about, to follow Jesus and to share the message of Jesus. Well, who did he call? Verses 16 through 19 lists these 12 disciples. These 12 names here are listed. There's three other places in the New Testament where they're listed, in Matthew, in Luke, and in the book of Acts. And they're all basically in the same order with a a couple variations. But the, 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 the same basic order, in that same basic order, we can see three groups of four disciples. So it's kind of like four, three groups of four that that could be uh, noticed here. And they begin, the list begins with those closest to Jesus and kind of goes out from there. And so in that first group, you have Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And those would be the, the first, his first disciples and his closest disciples. And among those, we recognize Peter, James, and John as what we might refer to as the, the informal or maybe uh, ne- never said this way, but the inner circle of Jesus. Again, Warren Wearsby uh, observes that the harmonizing this list, we also can see that there's kind of a, a two-by-two model that's happening here. We have Peter and Andrew, that, those are brothers. James and John, brothers. Then Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James and Thaddeus, Simon and Judas Iscariot, which would go well with Mark chapter 7, where Mark writes this, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirit. But let's just take a, a cursory run at this list uh, quickly. The first four, again, were the four closest to him. They were all fishermen. And uh, the first of the list is always Simon, or also called Peter, uh, Cephas, meaning rock. And, and Peter is always listed first as he became kind of the spokesman, as we know, uh, for the, the group. He is well remembered for his uh, outspoken nature. Uh, sometimes um, maybe he shouldn't have been as outspoken as he was, but sometimes he would say what maybe all of us were thinking or all of his disciples were thinking. John MacArthur says of Peter that he had a foot-shaped mouth, <laughs> uh, which maybe some of us can relate with at times in our life. Uh, dis- disciples or apostles two and three were James and John. Those are the brothers, the, the sons of Zebedee, uh, to whom Jesus gave the name Sons of Thunder. And that was due to their, their hot-tempered nature. Now, if you know anything about John, John is the writer of the Gospel of John and the epistles, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, as well as Revelation. 
And what you might remember about 1 John is 1 John is a lot about love. Right? Love one another. Love your brothers. Love, 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 love. And so here we see this one who at one point in his life was referred to as son of thunder for his hot temper is now writing epistles, writing letters about loving one another. Right? This is the change, man. Right? This, is, this is the difference that Jesus makes. Taking one who was once one way and changing transformation. The fourth disciple listed is Simon's brother, Andrew. Andrew was the one, back in John chapter 1, who brought Peter to meet Jesus. That, that Andrew actually was called first, and then Andrew went to Peter and said, you got to come see. you got to come see him. you got to meet Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, Andrew um, is not as uh, celebrated throughout the scriptures, not as uh, frequently talked about. And as we go through this list, you're going you're to think, I'm not even sure I know any other references where these people are mentioned. And you'll probably be right. They, they become less and less frequent in the text. But Andrew seemed to be much more of an average guy than, than Peter, much uh, less bold than his brother. And yet when mentioned, the few times he is, he seems that he's, he's bringing people to Jesus. Right? He brought his brother to Jesus. He's the one when Jesus says, go get food for these 5,000 people, that he says, well, here's this boy's lunch. What do you want to do with that? And Jesus says, sit down. Right? And, 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 and he made a meal. Right? He's the one who, when the, the men say to the disciples, sirs, that we might see Jesus. We, we want to see Jesus. Philip hears that. He goes to Andrew. And then Andrew goes to, to Jesus with it. Right? This is the, the mentality of Andrew. And though kind of anonymous in the Gospels, history tells us that Andrew actually became a patron saint of three different nations, Scotland, Romania, and Russia. Which tells us this, that, that though the, the scriptures do not indicate all of the influence that the d- disciples and the apostles had. Right? That's not necessarily the point of the scriptures, but history tells us of many of their impacts. Number five is, is Philip. Philip may have been a fisherman as well and, and is often paired with the, the sixth uh, apostle here, Bartholomew. Uh, he's actually the one who brought Bartholomew to Jesus or uh, in, in, in the book of John called Nathaniel. So that's same name, same guy. Uh, Philip though is, just for the record, is not the Philip in Acts chapter eight. With the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, those are two different people. Sometimes with our Herods and with our Jameses, uh, sometimes we get these names mixed up. It's, it's easy to do. Uh, but th- those are two different, different people. Uh, number six, we said was Bartholomew uh, or Nathaniel. And one of the things we remember about Nathaniel is he's the guy who says, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> when he heard about Jesus, like, wait, Nazareth? No, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Uh, a skeptic, we could say. Uh, since, since, uh, since where Jesus came, he was skeptical of it. But later in John chapter 1, we learn that, that he does see Jesus for who he is. He sees him as the son of God, the king of Israel, is what he says. John chapter 1, 46 through 49. Number seven is Matthew, or Levi. We talked about him already in our study through the book of Mark. But he was a tax collector. Uh, he was a loner. He was in... Uh, in business with the Roman government. He was unwelcomed by his own countrymen. And yet, here we see Jesus calling him, and he, we learn, becomes a writer of the gospel, the author of the gospel of Matthew. Again, what a transformation. Number eight is Thomas. And in some parts of the Bible, Thomas is called the twin, which you might think, well, 
Which one's he a twin with? Is he a twin with the next guy? No. And the reason he's called a twin is because in Greek, the word is didymus, which means, wait for it, twin. Right. So that's why he is called a twin. What we know about Thomas is that he was a bit of a pessimist. And again, known for his skepticism, as you might recall, one of his main scenes, if, if you get remembered for something, this probably isn't what you want to be remembered for, but in John chapter 20, after Jesus shows himself to some of the disciples, Thomas isn't there, they tell Thomas, we've seen him, he's here. And Thomas says, unless I feel the scars, right? Unless I see the holes in his hands, the hole in his side, I won't believe, right? And then Jesus appears to him again and he gets it, right? He gets it and becomes a man of faith. Number eight, or number nine, excuse me, is James, the son of Alphaeus, or sometimes called James the Less. And now Alphaeus, and if you remember, Levi is the son of Alphaeus as well. Whether they are related, we don't know. It doesn't, doesn't tell us that. James doesn't necessarily make that connection in any, any of the time that the Bible talks about him. For whatever reason, as we said before, uh, not much is, is known of James. As with Thaddeus, who is also called Judas in other places, and, and paired with James the less, not much is, of, of them is known either. Um, but, uh, of him either. But, but though they both apparently had a pretty low profile, um, and practically obscure, really, in the biblical text, uh, they were called by God. They were called by Jesus to follow. And for, for, for all of what we know, they, they did just that. Uh, number 11 is Simon the Zealot, or some of your Bibles might say Canaanite. Uh, Canaanite probably isn't the best or most helpful word there because a Canaanite is a, a party of zealots. And so the word zealot is a better description of what Simon was. Uh, a zealot uh, was a Jewish political extremist. Okay? Uh, these zealots wanted to overthrow Rome. They were militants. They were uh, violent outlaws who, who would seek to uh, work out their plans by force, even by killing. Um, they, they were zealous for, uh, for Judaism. Uh, and yet, we see here Simon is called of God and became what we could understand as zealous for the Lord. Right? Uh, one of the interesting things to consider is when you start to put all these guys in the same group. right? And you think of Simon a zealot who was uh, adamantly against Rome. And then you hear there's a tax collector who's working with Rome, right? And now they're part of the same small group. And you thought you had problems with your small group, right? You thought you had differences with people in your Sunday school class or in this church. You thought you had political differences from the person sitting across the aisle, right? No, no. These two people were on polar ends of the spectrum, really, right? And here Jesus makes all the difference. Right? That's true today too. Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus changes us. And finally, we see Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus, who Jesus calls in John 17, verse 12, the son of perdition. What a group of guys, right? What, what a crazy group of guys. And maybe you can relate a little bit with a few of them. Maybe you can find yourself somewhere in there. But Jesus calls all these men together and he shares the responsibility, the ministry of carrying out the mission of God with them. And he called them together to prepare them for the work of the ministry, to, to share in this. And you know what? Today, the church is called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says this to Timothy, what you heard from me in the presence of many witness, witnesses entrusts the faithful men who will enable 
who will be able to teach others. And so the same mentality continues, that, that we raise up, we teach others that they may teach, that they may continue on, that we share in the ministry. Now, some of us might not think we're cut out for ministry. Maybe we think, well, I'm not a, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a teacher, or I'm not, you know, uh, an orator. Well, again, if you look back at this list, like these were not religious men. These were not well-trained men in any sort of um, academic or official capacity. They were fishermen. They were, they were quote-unquote, lay people, right? And yet God used them to, the book of Acts tells us, to turn the world upside down. So he can use you and me. He can use unlikely, commonplace, ordinary people. 1 Corinthians 1 Verses 26 through 31 says, For consider your calling, my brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards, and not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, why? Why would he do all that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast, let the one who boasts, let me get that right, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not boasting in ourselves, boasting in the Lord. So God calls the, the, the weak, he calls the ordinary, like these 12, so that he gets the glory. First Baptist churches today are to equip people. And, and, and when we're equipped, we are to be sent. Right? We are to be released to serve. Not serve by ourselves, serve others with others. Right? This is how Jesus managed. This is how he managed his, his, the pressures of ministry, the pressures of his life. What did he do? He separated. He spent time with God and he shared his responsibilities the pressures of life and ministry are real for us too. And the results of those pressures can beat us up. Some of us have been beat up by ministry. Some of us have served and it hasn't gone well. You've tried your best and it just doesn't seem to be received real well. Or you get the comments, right? Or you get the reactions, right? And we could be tempted to say, well, forget it. Forget it then. But Jesus has called us and he's equipped us and he's given here us a model to follow of how we can manage our burdens or manage our pressures. But as we close, Jesus is not just an example. Jesus isn't just giving you a list of things to do. Do these three things and you'll be better. It's not, that's not the point. He's actually the means as well. He's not just the example. He's the means. What do I mean? I mean this, that in Jesus, we actually find the rest that we need. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's through Jesus that we can come to God. We talk about praying. It's not just Buckle down and pray. No, the only way you can pray is because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has provided a way and he is the mediator. That's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name because this prayer is coming to God through Jesus. 
When you hear someone pray and they don't say in Jesus' name, you may say, well, that's a technicality. No, it's, it's a confession. We are stating the only way that God hears this prayer is because of Jesus. So I come to God to manage my, prayer, my, my pressures through prayer because Jesus is the great mediator between me and God. And finally, Jesus is the one on whom we cast our cares. We share our burdens with others, yes, but, but ultimately, we cast our cares on Jesus. We roll our burdens over on him, we could say. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Or in the ESV, it says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You're not alone. You're not alone with the pressures today. The, the point isn't to give you a list of to-dos today. Check off, go be by myself. I said a prayer. I delegated responsibility. No, it was to, to see Jesus' example, yes, follow it, yes, but how could you ever? Because he already has. And now in him and through him, you can have that rest. You can come to him. You can come to him in prayer. And you know that there's one who carries your burdens. And so may God help us to manage our pressures by coming to him for the help that we need. Would you pray with us, with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. We thank you for uh, his life. Yes, his example. We're thankful that he is not just uh, telling us how to do something, but he has done it for us and enables us to do it. Not on our own. God, we're so thankful that you don't just give us a list of rules and say, good luck. You invite us into a relationship with you and then, by grace, provide for us the means, the, the ability, the enablement to do it. So God, we do ask for your help today. There are pressures. There are real pressures. Some of us are feeling it in a world that, that seems more and more chaotic, that, understanding what, what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not, trying to get our arms around some of these things can, can be, be difficult. For some of us, we have pressures from people who seem to want more from us than, than we have to give. For some of us, that the problems are mounting and we're not quite sure how to handle it. Sometimes we feel like we, we want to do something, but we're not sure how to or if we can. Or God, help us. Help us to get alone with you. Help us to bring our burdens to you. Help us to bring others into our life to live in community. Help us to find our rest in you. God, may we roll our burdens onto you, the one, the one who, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. Maybe we have heavy burdens today. God, we... We, we roll them over to you today. For those who are sitting here today with pressure, they're not sure what to do. Maybe they don't know you. God, I pray they first and foremost come to see Jesus, the Savior they need. To repent, to hear the message of Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. They come to him to find rest for their souls. God, would you help us this week? Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.